Please stay tuned for important disclosure information at the conclusion of this episode. Welcome to the Investing Insights Podcast from Morningstar. In this week's podcast, Susan Jabinski and Jason Kephart discuss collective investment trusts, Adam Nilsson fills us in on the latest 529 plan ratings, and Christine Ben shares her tips for RMD season, as well as her takeaways from Portfolio Makeover Week. Let's get started. Here are Susan Jabinski from Morningstar, Inc. and Jason Kephart from Morningstar Research Services. Hi, I'm Susan Jabinski with Morningstar. Collective investment trusts, or CITs, are becoming more prevalent in retirement plans, such as 401ks. Joining me today to talk about what CITs are, why we're seeing more of them, and what that means for retirement plan participants is Jason Kephart. Jason is a strategist with Morningstar's multi-asset funds research team. Hi, Jason. Thanks for being here today. Thanks for having me. So let's start out by talking about what a collective investment trust is, also a CIT, and how that differs from a mutual fund. So essentially, it's just another wrapper. Um, They tend to be managed by the exact same way as mutual funds. It's all the same firms, Vanguard, American Funds, Fidelity, BlackRock, all the common household names. Really, it's just the wrapper that you're getting at the end of the day that's different. And what the key here is, is how they're regulated. Mutual funds are regulated under the Investment Company Act of 1940, while CITs are regulated under the Employee Retirement Income Security Act. Now, that's the key difference between the two. And the difference, what it translates to is if you're in a mutual fund, if you or I are in the same share class of a mutual fund, we have to pay the same fee no matter what by law. If you have $100 million and I have a $1 million, you still, we still are going to pay the same fee. CITs don't have that rule under ERISA. So firms can negotiate with plan sponsors to get better fees for plans that have a lot more assets than smaller plans. But what we're really seeing is, which is kind of the exciting part for plan participants is, um, CITs used to really only be available on the biggest plans, mega plans, but we're seeing those come down um, to smaller plans. And as they do, those cost savings should be passed on to participants throughout more retirement plans. So why have we seen an increase in the number of CITs in defined contribution plans like 401ks? I think the fee thing's really driving it. There's been a laser focus from plan sponsors on lowering fees. Um, you know, there's also been a wave of lawsuits against 401k plans over excessive fee arguments. And so CITs are one way to say, for a plan sponsor to say they did their fiduciary duty, put their best foot forward, got the best market price they can get for their plan. So I think it kind of shields them a little bit from those excessive fee lawsuits. I think that's really what's been the impetus for driving this. But at the end of the day, the participants are going to win if fees are lower. Now, Jason, you've done some work looking specifically at the increase in collective investment trusts in target date strategies. So what does the data show, say, over the past decade or so about sort of the uptake there and the increase? Yeah, so what we've seen is that CIT's market share of total target date strategy assets is growing rapidly. Uh, Six years ago, it was less than 20% when we updated our target date landscape at the end of 2020. um, It came out to about 43%. Mm. You know, it's going to be over 50% in a couple years now. So we're really seeing this really rapid growth. And what's really interesting is you... People might not even know that they are investing in CITs on their retirement plans. It's hard to really tell the difference just from a line item. Um, like I think people at Morningstar, we have a CIT on our 401k plan. And I don't know if everyone even knows that it's a CIT, not a mutual fund. That's interesting. So now, and, and where are flows going um, if, we're, if we're looking at target date strategy flows? Is it going more towards the larger firm CITs or more towards the mutual funds or how's it looking? Um, we're seeing the flows increasingly shift towards the CITs. Um, 
And the mutual funds are still in positive territory for the most part, but firms like Vanguard, we're seeing a massive shift in interest towards their CITs as firms just, even Vanguard can get cheaper, right? It's kind of crazy. <laughs> their institutional share class, their target date funds, nine basis points, but their CITs, you can get a dramatic uh, fee cut from there, as dramatic as you can get going from nine to zero. Yeah. <laughs> but when you have a $100 billion plan, every basis point is like that you save on fees is another basis point that goes towards your plans or your participants' ability to save for retirement. So we've also seen some families converting their mutual funds into CITs. How's that work? What's going yeah, on? Yeah, so that's what we that's uh, another trend we've seen accelerating over the past three years. Um, CIT conversions are reported to Morningstar um, by the fund companies, so we can adjust our net flows numbers. Um, and what we've seen is just a really pickup on that. And what it is is once a plan has enough assets to really qualify for the CIT, or gets more comfortable with that CIT structure. We're seeing them move um, just one-to-one. So say T. Rowe Price Target Retirement uh, Mutual Fund, just move it right into the CIT, get lower fees for your participants in that one kind of easy move. So I'm assuming we think this uptake is going to continue based on what we've seen, right? Like what, what other factors are sort of working in favor of this continuing to be a trend? I think the other thing you're seeing is a lot more um, innovation in the CIT space. It seems like firms are a little bit more um, comfortable, ex- not experimenting is probably too strong a word, but trying new things. Um, like CITs, target date funds, it's not uncommon to see like direct real estate as a small holding, whereas only one target date mutual fund has one. Mm. We're also seeing the new push towards guaranteed income within a target date manifesting itself within CITs. That seems to be kind of uh, the big trend right now um, that we're keeping a close eye on. But I think those kind of continued innovations, um, because the CIT is a little less regulated, um, which also has drawbacks, but I think you're going to continue to see a little bit more innovation in that space. And that's also going to, I think, continue to kind of propel them. So you, you mentioned drawbacks. And while innovation is a great thing, and of course, lower costs are a great thing, what are some of the drawbacks, if any, for plan participants that are starting to see some of those assets go towards CITs? There's less required transparency around CITs than there are mutual funds. That's kind of the drawback of not being under the Investment Company Act of 1940. Um, so like CITs aren't required to disclose their manager names, which is a very key inf- part of it, uh, information that I think anyone would want to know. So I think with the amount of information you're getting, your CITs could vary a lot by your plan sponsor and which firm is kind of providing that CIT. So you could have a lot of different experiences. But I think until you're able to really easily compare CITs the way we can compare mutual funds and ETFs, you know, that's really the, the bar that we should be pushing CITs forward. Well, Jason, thank you so much for your time today, helping us walk us through what we're seeing with CITs and why we might be seeing more of it going forward. Thanks for having me. I'm Susan Javinsky with Morningstar. Thanks for tuning in. Expand your investing horizons and look to the long term with Morningstar's podcast, The Long View. Join hosts Christine Benz and Jeff Patak as they talk to influential leaders in investing, advice, and personal finance. Search for and subscribe to The Long View today. Now, Adam Milson from Morningstar Research Services discusses the latest 529 plan ratings. Hi, I'm Susan Chabinski with Morningstar. Morningstar recently updated its ratings on the largest 529 education savings plans. Joining me today to discuss the plans that earned our lowest ratings is Adam Milson. Adam is an analyst with Morningstar's global multi-asset funds research team. 
Nice to see you, Adam. I see you, Susan. So um, we update our 529 plan ratings every October. How many plans did we rate this year, and how many earned our lowest rating, which is the negative rating? So this year we rated 62 plans in total. Uh, there was four upgraded plans, seven downgraded plans, and we initiated coverage on one plan this year. And then what traits do the 529 plans with negative ratings share? Sure, absolutely. So negative rated plans, um, obviously, are our lowest conviction um, out there. So, you know, usually they have one structural, major structural flaw or flaws um, that we see. So that can be excessively high fees. It can be very under-resourced um, investment teams. That could be, uh, you know, subpar oversight from the state or the investment manager. Or that could also just be uh, a, a poorly constructed uh, glide path, outdated glide path. Many of these negative rated, negative rated plans have this structural or structural flaws, but they also tend to be those that are a step behind an industry that is very quickly moving and evolving um, for the betterment of investors. So Adam, of the seven plans that earn negative ratings, five are sold through financial advisors. So is there some relationship between financial advisors and not so great 529 plans? So it's not a direct relationship um, by any means. Uh, we do have two bronze rated advisor sold plans, so they can earn um, our medalist rating. Uh, one is offered by Ohio and the other by Virginia. So not a direct relationship, but uh, advisor sold plans do tend to come at a higher fee, which is a, a key pillar um, of our ratings. Um, and really, there's two key drivers to that. So advisor-sold plans obviously cater to financial advisors who get commissions on the funds or plans that they put investors in. So that's one piece of it. The second piece would be the construction of those portfolios that tend to be an advisor-sold plan. So we tend to see more actively managed strategies going into the portfolios of advisor-sold plans. And because of that, the fees are higher than what you would see with index products that a lot of maybe direct-sold plans like to use. So those are the two key reasons that drive the higher fees, which is an inherent piece of our assessment of plans. So, Anne, let's do a deep dive into just a couple of the plans that received negative ratings from us this time. Um, first, we downgraded uh, Nevada's SSGA U-Promise 529 plan this year from neutral to negative. Mm -hmm. Why? Yeah. So this Nevada plan, um, really two key reasons to the downgrade this year. First is the outdated glide path that it has. Um, although it is a progressive glide path, which we do see as an industry best practice or one of, uh, and they were one of the first to roll that progressive glide path out. But at the same time, they've really fallen behind. Uh, and the glide path construction itself, uh, we have concerns with, specifically uh, the steep nature of the glide path um, kind of going into the enrollment year. Uh, that's a critical time for education savers and something um, that is you know, behind what we would expect. Secondly, uh, is the oversight of the plan. So Nevada, unlike many states, actually has five plans that they're overseeing. Uh, many plans have just two plans, uh, or many states just have two plans. Um, so having five plans uh, under the oversight alongside uh, stretched resources is a, is a concern. So those two reasons are really why uh, we saw the downgrade to negative this year. And then we did downgrade another plan to negative this year from neutral, New Mexico's Scholar's Edge plan. And again, that went from neutral to negative. Why? Yeah, absolutely. So the big driver here was the departure of New Mexico State's Executive Oversight Board's uh, director, and that's Ted Miller. Ted Miller joined uh, the state and the board in 2015, and he was a uh, 
immediate impact to the plan. Uh, and he drove a lot of uh, meaningful changes over the years to not only this plan, but the direct sold plan um, that the state offers as well. So in 2019, he was a key piece to the overhaul of those plans where we had positive use of the changes that they were making. So his abrupt, abrupt uh, retirement uh, was a big loss for the state, uh, but also left the state under-resourced. Um, so that's a concern. Then also the, the overall plan's fees are high compared to the overall universe. Um, so that is a detriment to education savers over the long haul as well. So then lastly, let's say you're an investor and you're in you know, a, a subpar 529 mm -hmm. plan. Is there anything you can do about that? Can you switch to a different plan? Are there penalties for doing that? What are your options? Definitely. So you can switch from plan to plan um, and you have that option. Uh, and in most cases, there aren't tax implications tied to that. The IRS does allow one uh, tax-free rollover per beneficiary every 12 months. Um, so you do have that option available to you. Um, but if you do go over that limit, there can be penalties associated. So if you're thinking about moving from a plan to a different plan, you just want to make sure that you're, you're being cautious and understand uh, that you're, you're actually qualifying for that one tax-free rollover. And in that case, there's no implications. But again, if you, if you go over that limit, then there can be penalties. Well, Adam, thank you for your time today and for walking us through some of these negative rated plans. We appreciate sure. it. Thank you for having me. I'm Susan Javinsky with Morningstar. Thanks for tuning in. Next, Christine Benz from Morningstar Inc. shares tips for RMD season. Hi, I'm Susan Javinsky from Morningstar. Required minimum distributions from tax-deferred accounts like IRAs and 401ks took a hiatus last year, but they're back on for 2021. Joining me to discuss what investors need to know about RMDs this year is Christine Benz, Christine's Morningstar's Director of Personal Finance and Retirement Planning. Hi, Christine. Nice to see you today. Hi, Susan. Great to see you. So we did have uh, a little bit of news in the world of RMDs during the past couple of years. Um, first, let's talk about why RMDs were on hold in 2020, and then also talk about when and why the age for RMDs increased from 70 and a half years to 72 years. Yeah. So first things first, the hiatus in 2020 was driven by that market sell-off, which feels like a distant memory now. But at the time, we had that calamitous market sell-off at the beginning of the pandemic. And the idea there, and this has happened before, there's precedent for this. The idea is that RMDs go on hiatus to keep retirees from having to invade their IRAs, 401ks when they're down in the dumps. So they will leave more of the account in place to recover when the market eventually does. So that was in place as of March of 2020. As far as the age change, that was part of the SECURE Act that was passed into law in late 2019. And it brought the age limit up to a nice even number, which <laughs> certainly is uh, an improvement from my standpoint. But also um, some people had been lying being for an age increase because of life expectancies increasing. And so the idea there is that if that starting date is a little bit further out, that that leaves more of the IRA in place for retirees later in life. So that was kind of the foundation of that. And the net effect of that was that um, new RMD takers were able to take advantage of that hiatus in 2020, but also the uh, extension in the age. So Christine, what do first-time RMD takers need to know? 
Well, they need to know that they need to take their RMDs because the penalty is really steep if you miss an RMD. It's equivalent to 50% of the amount that you should have taken but didn't take. So you don't want to monkey around with it. But I think it's important to note that you do have some flexibility about when you take the RMD within a given year. So you base your RMD amount on whatever your account's value was at the end of 2020. That's already baked. You can't affect the amount of your RMD later on after the end of that tax year. So if it's better for you to take it early in the year, fine. If you want to wait, wait until later in the year, that's okay too. But you do have some flexibility there as well. I would point out that first-time RMD takers do have a little bit of wiggle room to take their first RMD on April 1st of the year following the year in which they turned 72. So if someone turned 72 in 2021, they actually have until April 1st, 2022 to take that first RMD. It's usually not advisable to do that though because they'll also need to take another RMD in 2022 for the 2021 tax year. So get some tax advice, but that's usually not a great strategy even though it might seem like a good idea to delay that first RMD. You've often talked in articles and, and prior videos with us that um, you think it's important for people to strategize, try to strategize where you're taking your RMDs from. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I think this is so under-discussed, Susan. So as long as you take the right amount from the right accounts, it doesn't matter which specific investment holdings those withdrawals come from. So I always say use RMD season as an impetus to restore some balance to your portfolio. For many investors, they've enjoyed really strong equity market performance, and they may want to skinny down their equity holdings a little bit given that the, the stock market has performed so well for so long. So especially if you have a hold a specific holding that has really shot out the lights, perhaps you could concentrate your distributions there, leave things that haven't performed as well intact or potentially even shift things around and add to them, but pull your RMD from the holding that you wanted to scale back on anyway. And by the same token, you can also look at trouble spots within your portfolio. Maybe there was some holding that you just didn't want within your portfolio. There's been a manager change or you had some other impetus to sell it. Use RMDs as a catalyst to do that improvement of your portfolio. So what about, you know, there are investors who say, oh, I have to take my RMDs and I don't need it. Nice problem to have, right. but um, so can investors reinvest their invest their RMDs? Well, they can. So you can uh, reinvest in an IRA or a, even a Roth IRA. Um, the key there, though, is in order to do that, you need to have earned earned income. And so, for a lot of seventy two year olds, they don't have earned income. Yeah. Their income's either coming from Social Security or coming from their portfolio. But if you do have earned income or your spouse has earned income, indeed you can invest in that IRA. For a lot of people from a practical standpoint, to the extent that they have RMDs that exceed their needs, they can and should use a taxable brokerage account to reinvest the proceeds. I think that that can be a really nice strategy. And the other thing to keep in mind is that you can 
maintain your asset allocation with those new investments. So say you pull your RMD, but your asset allocation was just perfect at the time that you did that. <laughs> well, go ahead and take those unneeded RMDs and put it to the holding, put it to the type of holding that, that you just sold out of. So you can retain balance in your accounts as you go about reinvesting those distributions. And then what about the tax implications of RMDs? Is there really anything an investor can do about that? Well, one of the big things you can do is that you can do what's called a qualified charitable distribution. So this means that you are letting the charity or charities of your choice work with your IRA provider. And so you're making a contribution to the charity or charities of up to $100,000 of your IRA. And the nice thing about that QCD, qualified charitable distribution, is that the amount that you do send to charity does not affect your income. And so it's a really nice tax saving strategy for the charitably inclined. I would say if you're making any charitable contributions whatsoever and you're also subject to RMDs, take advantage of this QCD because it's a nice tax saving measure. For the rest of, of people who have RMDs that they love to hate, the best way to reduce the tax bill on your RMDs is to do some strategy prior to RMDs commencing. And so that might mean some conversions, perhaps a series of conversions in the early years of retirement before the RMDs kick in. That can be a terrifically effective strategy. So if you're in that pre-RMD zone and you're retired or getting close to retirement, get some advice from a financial advisor or a tax advisor or about steps you might take to potentially lessen the RMDs down the line. Well, Christine, thanks for your time today and giving us some ideas of things to think about during RMD season. We appreciate it. Thank you so much, Susan. I'm Susan Jabinski with Morningstar. Thanks for tuning in. Lastly, Christine Benz rounds up the biggest lessons she learned from Portfolio Makeover Week. Hi, I'm Susan Jabinski with Morningstar. Morningstar.com is wrapping up its annual Portfolio Makeover Week. Joining me to share some key takeaways from this year's crop of makeovers is Christine Benz, who spearheads the series each year. She's Morningstar's Director of Personal Finance and Retirement Planning. Christine, thanks for being here today. Susan, it's great to be here. Now, you've been doing these, these portfolio makeovers for more than a decade now. And um, you've noted over time that one of the key reasons or key motivators behind people reaching out to you is to help them suss out their retirement readiness. A lot of these folks are on the precipice and not quite sure if they should pull the trigger and make the move. Um, how do you help people sort out figuring out if they're ready to retire. Yeah, you're so right, Susan. We've had a great market. So we've had even more people who are in sort of that 55 to age 67 mm -hmm. sort of band looking for another set of eyes on, on their plans. And so I usually start the process, if I'm working with someone who is at that life stage, we start by asking them to take stock of what their income needs will be in retirement, what changes they expect to make between now and retirement and how that will affect their budget. So that's the starting point. Then we look at what other non-portfolio sources of income they'll be bringing into retirement. So oftentimes it's Social Security, sometimes it's a pension. We take stock of those, kind of reflect on the decision-making around the timing 
of those decisions. And once we've decided or determined how much of the income needs are coming from those non-portfolio sources, then we take a look at the portfolio. We look at whether it's sufficient to supply those additional cash flow needs in addition to the ones that are coming from Social Security or pension. So that's the starting point, just sort of checking the durability of the plan. And then from there, we can do some work on the portfolio itself, where we look at whether the portfolio is set up to provide those cash flows. We all know that income has dropped through the floor over the past several decades. So we need to look at sourcing those cash flows a little bit differently. That's where the bucket approach that I often talk about comes into play, where we set up some safe assets to provide cash flow if the early years of retirement happen to not be great for the equity market. We want to batten down the hatches. So that, that's the general process. It's something that I find myself repeating again and again when I'm working with and talking with people who are at this life stage. Another um, common goal that people seem to have when they reach out to you for a portfolio makeover is this idea of, geez, my portfolio has just gotten kind of unwieldy. You know, how can I streamline? How can I reduce my number of holdings? Why? Why is streamlining so important? And what are some things that we as investors can do to sort of figure out, is my portfolio maybe a little unwieldy itself? And, and what can I do to sort of slim that down? Right. If frequently, that is the impetus for someone seeking portfolio makeovers. Oftentimes, the, the person doesn't suggest it, but I look at the portfolio and say, my gosh, we need to do some streamlining here. And the reason it's so important is that if you have fewer moving parts in your portfolio, you have an easier time monitoring it. You have an easier time knowing what your asset allocation is. You have an easier time keeping up with the holdings just to make sure that they're positioned the way that you want them to be. So life is just so much simpler if you can reduce the number of moving parts in the portfolio. And so I tackle this from a few different levels. One is whether we can look at collapsing the number of accounts. So a great example in this year's portfolio makeover series was with a person who was getting quite close to retirement, and he was older than age 59 and a half, so he had the opportunity to take his 401k holdings and merge them into his traditional IRA holdings. That's not an opportunity for everyone, but for him it was very effective. So we look at opportunities like that, and then from there, once we've consolidated the accounts to the extent that we can, we can then look at the holdings within those accounts. So I find myself again and again reaching for total market index funds, total market ETFs, whether equity or fixed income, can give someone such a worthwhile and effective building block for a portfolio. I've used target date funds within portfolios. For example, um, there's a couple in this year's portfolio makeover series who uh, were in their 40s. I think he was in his early 50s, several years until retirement. They had a number of accounts, but for um, uh, both of them, actually, I saw the target date fund serving a worthwhile role within their 401ks. They could concentrate on managing discrete building blocks within some of the other accounts, but the target date funds were really good quality ones and, and served that role very nicely. So I would urge anyone who's watching this to be thinking about streamlining because it does help improve a portfolio so much. 
Another um, issue that comes up when you're conducting your portfolio makeovers um, involves tax efficiency. And, you know, let's talk a little bit about some of the tax mistakes that people perhaps tend to make that you've seen in some of these portfolio makeovers. And then the flip side of that, what are some good tax strategies that people can pursue that might improve their portfolio's tax efficiency but won't trigger a huge tax bill to get to that more tax efficient place? Yeah, that's a really important set of questions. Tax efficiency is so important, um, and I think investors sometimes underplay it. But a couple of the mistakes that I would observe would be people underutilizing tax sheltered receptacles that are available to them. So certainly there are reasons to save in taxable accounts sometimes, especially if you have liquid needs, if you have expect that you'll need your money anytime soon and don't want to be bound by the strictures of a, a 401k or an IRA, but making sure that they're maxing out those tax-sheltered vehicles is job one. And then oftentimes I observe asset location problems where maybe you've got a good investment, but you've got it in the wrong account. So an example from this year's series was a high dividend yielding equity fund. Superb holding, I just wouldn't hold it inside of a taxable account. I would rather see that inside of an IRA, for example. Similarly, um, one of the portfolios had a municipal bond fund inside an IRA. Not mm. typically something I would do. Great fund, worthwhile for that person to hold, but it, it was better siloed within the tax taxable account. So those were some mistakes. In terms of addressing issues like that, it's tricky because oftentimes the holdings that you'd want to extricate from the taxable account are have appreciated themselves. And so getting them into a better account might necessitate a tax bill. And that's also been exacerbated by the fact that we've had this really great equity market. We've had strong performance across the board. So almost everything has a gain in it. So I would urge investors to approach making their portfolios more tax efficient with caution. Now, you alluded to the, in general, great stock market that we've had for quite a long time, particularly here in the U.S. So you've also seen in some of your portfolio makers that, in large part because of the, the rally in the U.S. stock market, a lot of investors are perhaps lighter on international stocks than they perhaps should be. How should we be thinking about international stocks? Yeah, every single portfolio makeover that I worked on this series was, in my view, too light on non-U.S. equities. And of course, we've been beating this drum that valuations are more attractive overseas than in the U.S. for a couple of years now, and yet the U.S. market has continued to outperform. But I do think that if investors want to try to set themselves up for better returns going forward, like over the next decade, I think it makes sense to emphasize size foreign stocks to some extent. For most of the portfolios that I worked on, I targeted kind of a two-to-one ratio of U.S. equity relative to non-U.S. equity. I think that's a, a good starting point when you look at a lot of professional asset allocation frameworks. They're in that approximate ballpark. So I think that as investors think about their portfolios, really no matter what their life stage, kind of think about that ratio as sort of a baseline when deciding how much to have in non-U.S. And then lastly, another common ailment that you seem to see in portfolios quite a bit is that people hold too much cash. And you've observed that, at, that cash isn't as innocuous as it once was. What do you mean by that? Right. A few years ago, I think I might have been more inclined to 
let someone's cash holdings ride a little bit, I would have been less worried about them. The, the thing that's bothering me right now, though, is inflation. That when someone has some sort of cash account, and in some cases people had large cash hoards of a couple hundred thousand dollars or more, um, the risk is that inflation is going to eat away at the purchasing power of that investment account that isn't really invested in anything that's earning much of a return. So I do feel some pull to get these portfolios as fully invested as makes sense given someone's anticipated cash flow needs. Certainly for younger folks, I think it makes sense to just go ahead and get asset allocated based on whatever framework you're using. If someone's getting close to retirement, I think they should have some cash at the ready in their portfolios, but they certainly wouldn't want to want to hold like five years worth of liquid reserves. So there I think you can safely get that money invested in short-term high quality bonds. You do have a little principal related volatility or the potential for it in such investments, but it won't be extreme provided you choose carefully. So I definitely did observe that the cash holdings are creeping up. I think that relates to the strong market. People feel like, well, it's not a great time. So I think you just have to figure out what your asset allocation is and deploy according to that framework that you've set out. Well, Christine, thank you so much for doing these portfolio makeovers. We know they're a lot of work, but not only is it a great service to the people you're doing the makeovers for, but it's a great service for the rest of us because every year you come back and you're able to share these findings with us and give us all some tips on how to do our own makeover. So we appreciate it. Thank you so much, Susan. I'm Susan Javinsky with Morningstar. Thanks for tuning in. That does it for this week's Investing Insights podcast from Morningstar. We hope you have enjoyed our program and we welcome your feedback. Please send your comments and questions to podcast at Morningstar.com. From everyone here at Morningstar, thanks for listening. This recording is for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. Opinions expressed are as of the date of recording. Such opinions are subject to change. The views and opinions of guests on this program are not necessarily those of Morningstar Inc. and its affiliates. Morningstar and its affiliates are not affiliated with this guest or his or her business affiliates unless otherwise stated. Morningstar does not guarantee the accuracy or the completeness of the data presented herein. The podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered tax advice. Please consult a tax and or financial professional for advice specific to your individual circumstances. Morningstar Research Services LLC is a subsidiary of Morningstar Inc. and is registered with and governed by the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. Morningstar Research Services shall not be responsible for any trading decisions, damages, or other losses resulting from or related to the information, data analysis, or opinions or their use. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. All investments are subject to investment risk, including possible loss of principal. Individuals should seriously consider if an investment is suitable for them by referencing their own financial position, investment objectives, and risk profile before making any investment decision.